Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This episode is sponsored by AbbVie's GettingHereToThere.com, a safe online space for the Bipolar One community to find inspiration through music and firsthand stories. Visit gettingheretothere.com to learn how advocacy musicians, music lovers, and others come together to reduce stigma and raise awareness of mental health. While you're there, sign up to be notified about additional support and resources. That's gettingheretothere.com. Today we are talking with Grammy Award-nominated singer-songwriter Mary Lambert. Mary has been a fantastic and outspoken advocate on issues such as mental health, LGBTQ rights, and body acceptance. And that activism has come through in Mary's music. Many of you know Mary from being featured on Macklemore's LGBTQ rights single, Same Love, as well as her song, She Keeps Me Warm, and Body Love. And her 2019 album, Grief Creature, addresses mental health issues of abuse, trauma, and depression. Mary just recently starred in the Netflix TV animated adventure musical film, Arlo the Alligator Boy. So check out all of her work at MaryLambertSings.com. Now on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so that we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And this week, Mary is talking about her struggle with bipolar disorder. Now, bipolar disorder is a mental illness that is particularly characterized by manic episodes in which an individual experiences a seeming elevation of mood that may make them feel more elated, energized, or grandiose, like they can take on the world. During manic episodes, people will often engage in very risky behavior, including unsafe sex, drug use, or even getting into fights. People who struggle with bipolar disorder may also experience episodes of depression in which they will feel very differently than they do during a manic episode. They have no energy, feel worthless, and unable to do even basic tasks. And these episodes may often feel like they come out of nowhere, where people struggling with bipolar feel trapped by a biological process over which they have no control. Now, one of the difficulties that many people describe when they struggle with bipolar disorder is how to interpret their manic episode. On the one hand, people feel energized and productive and seemingly positive. This can be a welcome relief from feeling worthless while depressed. But what Mary explains during our conversation is that when she's experiencing a manic episode, she does feel energized, but her mood is flat. She's not actually feeling so great about herself. And so that's why Mary described her manic episodes as the time when she feels most at risk for suicide, that dangerous combination of feeling really edgy and impulsive, but not feeling good about herself per se. Now, as we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback. 
questions you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and hear what Mary has to say. You ready to get started? Let's go. Let's go. Okay, Mary, welcome to going there. Hi. Hi. (laughs) How are you? I'm so excited to go there. Yes, we're going to go there. And so let's just go there. You know, one of the things that you and I talked about ahead of time is the very difficult issue of bipolar disorder. And Mm. so let's just, you've been very outspoken um, about having struggled with it, which is very, very much appreciated to anyone who's been struggling with who's a mental health advocate. And so I just want to start with what has bipolar been to you? How does it manifest for you in terms of how you feel and what you go through? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was diagnosed when I was like 12 or 13, but I thought I was like, no, I do theater. <laughs> like, I'm just incredibly dramatic. So I didn't really believe my diagnosis. I felt like, um, I felt like I had been reading a lot of, um, yeah, I'd been reading a lot of literature on uh mental illness and trauma at the time i thought i wanted to be a therapist when i was nine so i i read um like case studies of adolescents who had experienced trauma i read uh uh surviving uh, ophelia something about ophelia reviving ophelia and um and i thought i had sort of self-diagnosed that i just had ptsd that i was like no i just had a really really abusive childhood and um and my brain is just coping and I just have, I just sometimes want to die. And other times I am bouncing off the walls and cannot be contained. And um, everything makes me cry and everything makes me laugh for an hour. <laughs> um, so when my, uh, when I was diagnosed, I just, I kind of waved it off. And then um, when I was about 17, things got pretty, pretty bad. Um, there was just, it was like an, uh, uh, an, um, uh, what is the word? Like a climax of awful things happening all at once. Um, I was in the evangelical church and had realized I was gay. Um, and I had lost a, uh, my bandmate and like one of my best friends to leukemia. And, um, I was, uh, trigger warning, sexual assault. I was uh, gang raped in an army barracks and I, uh, yeah, I, I, I was, I felt really, really lost. So I, I attempted suicide when I was 17 and um, luckily like I, you know, I was okay. And I think that was when I realized that, that, that day that I um, attempted suicide, the, the day before I had one of the best days of my whole life. I was like, it was like just really strong feelings of euphoria. And I was, I I stayed up the whole night. I was just so, you know, I didn't know it at the time. It was just like really, really manic. And, um, and the next day I woke up and I was just like, oh, I'm ready for this to end. Like, this is, I'm done here. Um, so after that, I, I went on a couple different medications, um, 
the feeling sort of persisted of, of uh, suicidality. And um, so I got put on uh, Seroquel, like a really high dosage of Seroquel to sort of calm me down. Um, but I hated that. I started, I was like falling asleep in class and then getting in trouble for falling asleep in class. And I, I always like prided myself on being a good student. And, um, and then I was given Lamotrigine um, and because I hated the Seroquel so much, I stopped taking everything altogether at some point um, and then went off the rails again. And I sort of did that back and forth until uh, my early twenties. And, um, and I was, <laughs> I was with a girl who, you know, was, was worried about me and, um, and was like, it just, it's, it seems like you, you know, you, you go through pretty intense cycles. And I was like, well, I'm diagnosed bipolar. And she was like, what? <laughs> like, you're, you're not, you're not doing anything about it. I was like, okay, maybe I should try medication again. So I've been on Lamotrigine uh, since then. So I've been on it for about 10, 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously I'm sorry that all of those things happened to you that sound, mm-hmm. you know, horrible and traumatic and and to the extent that you you feel comfortable talking about them i want to you know kind of talk about that in terms of how it's it's influenced your mental health mm. if i just if i could just um just so that people understand what the highs and the lows feel mm. like yeah if for you and what you're what you're talking about it sounds like is a more rapid cycle mm-hmm. um is and so what do those highs feel like for you? you? You kind of described it as euphoric. Yeah. So for, you know, everybody's bipolar di- disorder is different. For me, I rapid cycle and I also have, what I, I think they're calling it mixed features now, like um, instead of like mixed episodes. So um, my partner is also bipolar and, and we've sort of, it's been an incredible, like an incredibly amazing thing to be able to just talk to somebody who knows. Um, but there is this feeling when you are euphoric where it's not like everything's so amazing that, you know, you, uh, it's not like extreme feelings of elation. It is like, um, sometimes it is the worst part of bipolar disorder. I may be getting a lot of stuff done, but I am, um, I, it might not be the right stuff. (laughs) I may be really, really, um, yeah. I'm trying to think of it's, it's so difficult to, make mental illness legible when it's, I mean, it's in your brain. So how do you communicate through it? It's been a real challenge uh, most of my life, but um, yeah, it's like, I definitely have like feelings of grandeur. Like I, like I'm so on top of the world and I can do and achieve anything. Like I could go to the moon if I wanted to. Um, I also, I, I'm so in the moment where it's like, um, I used to do really, really Im- impulsively re- reckless things um, before I was medicated. Um, but just like that nothing could touch me. Like I was invincible. Like I would do really reckless things because I knew I was going to like, like, this is it. This is now YOLO. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it feels, yeah, it just feels like, you could do, you could do anything like all the, all the power, you have all the power. And, um, I'm trying to think, and there, there's absolutely like 
joy with it, you know, and I think that's what is frustrating sometimes about bipolar disorder is like, when do you trust your happiness? And when do you trust like what it, when do you trust uh, depression or like just like a sad day um, and know that it's not chemical? Um, so as I've gotten older, I feel like I have, I can start to distinct like what is what's real and what's not. But as of course, like in your early twenties or when you're first, you know, it, or when you're first diagnosed for anybody, it, it feels like, my God, it feels like a mountain of things I have to learn that I, I have just assumed everything was, you know, normal. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're talking about with that euphoria, often people describe as there's this pressure you know, mm. like it's, it's almost like, I, I think a lot, and this may be kind of an unusual uh, analogy, but I, I think of the comic book character Cyclops with mm. like the stuff coming out of his eyes, yeah. that's totally uncontrollable. And on the one hand, there's this, there's this tremendous power, but on the other hand, it's, it's just coming out. Like if it's yeah. not controlled somehow, mm-hmm. and a lot of people, when they describe Bipolar disorder, they, they describe the manic episodes as yes, there's this this invincibility, there's this this power, but it's so pressured and so much like you feel as though, am I am I the one who's who's driving this car or am I just mm-hmm. kind of in the passenger seat at that mm-hmm. point? Totally. Yeah, I, I also think like I'm really, really fortunate to be able to have like an outlet to process stuff and to like work through things. Um, and also to have sort of, sort of something tangible to, to, um, yeah, work through those, those feelings, but that's, you know, the times that I have, um, been, the times that I have done harmful things to myself have been when I'm euphoric, have been when I'm manic. It is like, I feel like a prisoner in my own brain that I am, I I tried to explain it to an ex one time that I, (laughs) I felt like Bellatrix Lestrange in jail where she's like, she's pulling at the the bars and she's screaming and she's like, you know, I want to do all of this insane stuff and I don't know where it's coming from. And the times when I've been, you know, I experienced a really, um, really difficult um, episode four years ago, four or five years ago. And I, I, I experienced psychosis. I was just, I just started hallucinating and became very delusional. And, you know, when you are a highly functioning bipolar person, you're not allowed, you're not supposed to have those episodes. And um, so I didn't want to check myself in or do or anything like that because I was like in the middle of making an album and was like, I need to produce, I need to, I'll just put this into my art. And I, I survived, I didn't do anything incredibly reckless, but the mental state I was in, and I think during the course of that time, I maybe slept, I mean, maybe 10 hours through each week at a time. It was like, I was just constantly up. And I think that was probably part of the, you know, hallucinations and delusions was that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. Um, Yeah. One of the things that's so difficult, and you mentioned that concept of trusting yourself is that 
you know, look, you're a, I mean, I'm, I'm making the assumption based on your success that you are a driven person. You don't get to your level of success without being a driven person. And so there's also as a creative person, there's a feeling of, look, there's, there's stuff coming out of me that is my music and my art and my creativity and my passions and all that. And I just, I'm in the studio and I want to get there and it's, 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 you know, and I'm just working and I'm working and I'm pushing myself. And it's so hard to know where's the line. Number one, what's the origin of it mm. to trust yourself? Like, is this, is this a healthy origin? Mm. And at what point, even if it starts healthy, did it, does it morph? Because right. up until the very extreme moment, it, it all kind of looks similar, unfortunately. Right. right. That's so true. I mean, cause the parallels between like a tortured artist, like the ways that we view artists already that being sort of erratic and, you know, compulsive and, um, you know, especially for like prolific artists, like, you know, I just saw the, the mountain goats and I was just thinking about like, you know, like they make like an album a year, you know, <laughs> and what that kind of takes and not everybody who's an artist is mentally ill and not all mentally ill people are um are artists and uh there is it it is such a difficult line to know like am i doing this for the sake of you know the project in a like a with an undercurrent of stability or am i does this come at a cost to my mental health is this am i Am I making sacrifices to produce, to like be a productive person and achieve this, you know, this level of success that is important to me, that I'm determined to do? What, you know, what limbs am I cutting off in order to do that? Which is obviously a very odd sort of question, considering that the semi-stated purpose of, of any high powered profession is what limbs are you willing to cut off mm. in order to do this? Mm. You know, are you, are you, you know, are you willing, you know, as people who I'll work with in finance, it's like, well, are you willing to work a hundred hours a week and, mm. and get five hours of sleep? Are you mm. willing to, you know, right. be called at, at any moment, you know, in mm. order to do whatever it is that needs doing and in, in music, in order to be, successful. I mean, you think about the trajectory of, you know, well, are you, are you willing to tour at a, a very intense, I mean, by, by definition, almost how much you're willing to do is one of the things, not just yeah. talent that sets you uh, a person who's a professional right. from an amateur. And so that, that idea of, again, knowing how to modulate that alone, but then when throwing in, but I also don't know whether this is mental illness is just, it's like, how do you even navigate something like that? Totally. Yeah. I think for me, there's a really clear distinction of like the, like, cause my work I feel like is so, uh, is there's a duality in it that like the initial writing process is so incredibly cathartic. And part of the reason I'm alive, I think the main reason I'm alive that like songwriting is a form of survival and catharsis and it's an insular process. And so for me, I feel like I'm able to like, like when I songwrite, like if I'm just sitting at the piano, I will sit at the piano for, for hours. And I feel like it's this divine connection to God. Like, I feel like I am, 
I am connected to something really, really deep. And when I write, I'm able to say, you know, what would I communicate to the world if I could? I've written like a hundred songs that I'll never release because they're just like, they're for me. They were for like a process, a thing to process. So then there's the, the, the sharing, you know, like what, what do I decide to share? And for me, like the utility is important. I want to know that what I'm doing is like, I, I guess I feel a sort of like, like civic obligation. Like I, I really, I really want to nurture and be good and be like a steward of goodness for, for everyone and to make this world better. And so when I release music, that's sort of the intention when I share it, what gets sort of complicated. And I, I think how bipolar disorder really, um, affects that process is in sort of the sharing is in like the the marketing and like the the whole that's where the industry comes in right like when i was signed to i was signed to capital records and my project team was Katy perry's project team so they only worked on katie and me and i don't know i have no idea how how she does it how she did it how she survives doing that it was so grueling and um was one of like the darkest times in my life and there's that there's that fear of well anyone would kill to have this opportunity and now i have a hundred people working one song like pushing one song out there i don't want to let anybody down so I'm going to like just quiet everything so I can just get this job done. And you can do that, but it comes at a cost to something and it's not sustainable. So your needs don't ever like your needs don't disappear. They don't go away. You just displace them and then they tend to they tend to blow up in your face if you don't take care of it. Um, and so I've really experienced the the pain and the frustration of not being able to conform to a sort of like, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's capitalism, right? Like I like being able to fit into this, uh, this job that so many people seem to do so well at that I, I couldn't do. And, um, yeah. And that was just sort of evident at a certain point with the label where I was like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm bipolar. Like, I, I don't think that I can, that I can do what you guys are used to. And, um, I needed, a, I, I needed help. So it, it was a mutually beneficial parting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I want to actually get into that concept because you talked about spreading goodness and I want to, I want to touch back on that and, and what goes into having this career. But, but before we do, I just wanted to also talk about the depressive side of, mm. you know, because we, we were talking about before is, is the sort of manic side. And one of the things that's so particularly difficult about bipolar, you know, a lot of people when they have something, I mean, obviously like having depression is horrible in many ways. It's one of the things that is unfortunately horrible about it but there's a certain at times predictability is that it's depression or it's not depression, mm. you know? but it's the swings 
I think it, it adds another nuance of challenge mm. whereby, you know, again, you're, the, you're talking about the stress on your system. And so could we talk about going from that high to a low and what that feels like? Right. So I think what I experience, I don't know if it's, if it's like what other bipolar people experience, but like when I'm in a sort of euphoric state, that's the time when I have like, like those are the times where I'm, I've attempted suicide. Like it's it, the that level. And I'm kind of curious what feels different in terms of the, is it, is it that what's happening when you're manic is that you're like, I can do anything. And it, it kind of goes in that direction or is it just that things are so bad? And, and then if that's mm. the case, what's different about the depression where it doesn't get to that point where, where something like suicide alley is not something that's on your mind. Right. Yeah. I think with, um, with mania, it's this, I mean, that's why I, 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 I think my bipolar is, is different than most people's because of those sort of mixed features where, it's like my brain is working so, so fast. I, I like developed this system, like this scale of how I could explain what was happening to me. So I have like this, um, it's like a, a scale from one to 10 of like how, how quickly is my brain moving? Like how fast are my thoughts coming? What is the, like, what's the sort of energy of it? And then from a scale, a separate scale from one to 10, what is my mood like from like really, really depressed to really, really happy. Um, and what I notice is that when I am like, most often when I'm manic, if there's any sort of underlying thing going on in my life, the, the energy, the thought, the thoughts move really, really quickly. And my mood is like down to zero. So like, it's, it's a really dangerous company combination to like, like have your brain be moving so quickly and to have like impulsivity and feel incredibly depressed. So depression for me, like the, the typical swings people talk about for me, it just doesn't the, I'm too, I'm too like tired to, to like do anything about how sad I am. <laughs> um, and so I, there's, there is a sense in, of, in depression where I'm like, I don't, I don't care to do anything about it. I just feel it just a, a real lack of motivation. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you're talking about that's, that's so interesting and I think difficult maybe for people who don't struggle with it to understand is that when you're in that manic phase, your energy is at maximum, but your mood is down and how dangerous of a combination mm -hmm. that is, as opposed to depression where your mood is down. But, you know, a lot of the people that I work with will say, I, I don't have the energy to do anything at yes, all, exactly. let alone like something that's self-harm. Yeah. And so that's something when people when people see someone who's in a manic state, it's like, that's not necessarily happy. Right. That's energized. Yes, exactly. Totally. I mean, I feel like that is, it's been the most, the most difficult part of bipolar disorder isn't, or isn't sort of those depressive episodes. It's like managing when mania starts to hit that like, okay, what do I have all of my, you know, mechanisms in place to, 
protect me from like the storm is coming <laughs> and how can i how can i safely channel you know what are the what are the benefits how can i safely channel all of this in a way that's not destructive and uh so i tend to really really obsess over things and so i will find something safe to obsess over whether it's like um like a cell phone game or a TV show or something where I can direct that sort of obsessive thinking. Um, that's been helpful. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I did want to just offer up to talk about, um, and again, I appreciate that you said trigger warning, but when you talked about uh, the assault, which, which is obviously, you know, an incredibly traumatic event, do you feel comfortable talking about that in the context of um in the context of how that influences your mood absolutely yeah i think you know for me sexual trauma has been such a um <laughs> unfortunately like a <laughs> a prevalent thing in my life so i was um i was sexually abused by my dad growing up and um and i think when you're sexualized so early on your you become just sort of a like a sexual kid like you have all of these like all of this knowledge you really shouldn't have yet um and so for me that ended up turning into like you know i was just obsessed with being loved like like having somebody like w want me um and so I'm I'm not victim blaming myself, but I do I did put myself in a lot of risky situations and dangerous situations and that sort of like, you know, amplified by, you know, heavily drinking and substances and things like that, like was just a, a bad combination. But yeah, that that particular um assault was really um it was super traumatic. But I think what happens with a lot of trauma is like you um you have to create a narrative for it to make it make sense. And at the time, my, you know, perspective of what rape was, was like, you know, you know, a, a, a guy with a gun to your head, you know, like I, I didn't see, I, I thought, well, I eventually, you know, acquiesced, like I eventually like accepted what was happening. So that acceptance must have meant that I like allowed it to happen or whatever. Um, and so it took me a, a while to see like what had happened as, um, you know, an act of violence. I've, I felt like, no, I woke up the next morning and I, I cheated on my boyfriend, you know, like that's, that's what I did. I did something really, really awful and it's my fault. Um, without being like, oh, I, I, I said a no and I didn't want to, you know, um, and that in regards to, I mean, that sort of put me into a total tailspin. I think shame is like at the core of so much of that. And I think it really was, um, yeah, it was, it's it sat really nicely in bipolar disorder because I was able to, um, I'm just like the shame cycle just got louder and, and worse. And I, I think that what can happen is that the shame from a traumatic event, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily 
understand that when you struggle with a mental health issue, especially if you don't know what it is, mm. there can be shame from that as well, mm. where it's sort of like, I'm ashamed that I can't control myself, that mm-hmm. I'm not similar to what I'm seeing with other people. Yeah. And what you're describing is the just this this almost perfect storm of shame right and that i you know i can imagine just how overwhelming that must have been to feel right. like all of these things are are coming together around that idea right yeah and i think i think a lot of bipolar people experience this but there's this like once you have reached homeostasis again and you're like you know at a at a at a calm place post mania or post depression, you have to go on this sort of like apology tour of like, I'm really, really sorry for all the things I did. And it's a really difficult balance to be like, that wasn't me, but also I want to take accountability and that's not acceptable, but also it wasn't me. <laughs> like, like, I swear I'm not like that. You know, it, it feels, and then, then again, then you have like that whole, that whole shame cycle where it's like, like you just end up spiraling and then you feel like, you feel like shit because you have to, you have to apologize for who you are and what your what your brain does, and it feels like it feels never ending. And, and you know what's so interesting but unfortunate about that is like we never apologize to ourselves for mm. the shame we inflict. Mm. And it's like you're right; like everybody gets the apology tour. Mm-hmm. everybody gets considered, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking about in that case, your, your, you know, your, your boyfriend or whoever, when you were manic or depressed or whatever it is. And we never, ever, ever get around to being like, Hey, you know, I kind of knew that you had suffered something traumatic and I blamed you anyway. Sorry mm-hmm. about that, you know, yeah. to ourselves. And so we're the only ones left. Right. And no one apologizes to right. us. Right. And it's just like, uh, you know, what do, what do you do with that? You think you're being so responsible and, and whatever. And then it just, it just builds up. It's like, it's like they said that like shame it's, I don't even know at that point, if it becomes a spiral, it just becomes like a tsunami. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I think that is, I mean, that's like the crux of m- mental disorders too, is like, it, it doesn't really ever get, <laughs> it sounds so nihilistic. It doesn't ever really get better, but your strategies and your like ability to cope and your like awareness of what may happen or what has historically happened gets better so that you can sort of like, you know, anticipate or be aware of those triggers and the ability to communicate through it is really important because I think that's what's so, it's not just the, the behaviors that are, you know, affected through mental illness. It's also like, how do I communicate this in a way that, first of all, doesn't freak people out? I mean, I try, I remember trying to explain this to my ex and like, just it freaked her out. She's like, I can't, I am not comfortable with the fact that there is a point in your day where you're, where you're, you have suicidal ideation. Like that freaks me out and I'm not comfortable with that. I'm like, I don't know how to tell you that at this point in my relationship with bipolar disorder, I know to not trust it. I know that it's, it's like, it's a trick. I know that like, I just need to wait it out and breathe through it and find all my, like get all my coping strategies, like 
going and then I'm going to work through it. I don't know how to tell you that I can't, I can't control that, but I, I, at this point, I know how to, I know what it means. And I, and I know that it's not, it's not really happening. Hi there. This is Jill Hopkins from the Opus. After you check out this latest episode of my show, be sure to check out some of the other great programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including Rootsland, an original story of two friends who take a musical and spiritual journey from the suburbs of Long Island to the streets of Kingston, Jamaica, or Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY. Oh, and then there's the What Podcast. It's a weekly podcast by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. They're all fantastic. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. The thing that's that's such a shame, if you will, mm. is that, and I think that's why it's so important when people like yourself step up and talk about these issues, is that we do know how to do that with everything else. Mm. We know how to do that with asthma. We know how to do that with headaches. We know how to do it with cancer. We know how to do it with diabetes. Totally. Every single thing, you know, oh, like, you know, I don't want to hear that you're having heart palpitations. Like, you know, that's freaking me out. It's like, well, what, what do you want me to do? I have heart disease. You know, it's like, and, and, and nobody, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that nobody says that, like, obviously it's very disconcerting, but it, it comes from a place oftentimes where people are like, I'm so concerned about you. And, you know, there's all this empathy and sympathy and care that gets delivered. Mm-hmm. And we just don't, do that with, with mental health issues, right. even though it's just as biologically based, right. you know, all these things are, it's biology and stress, you right. know what I mean? Right. Like in a lot of ways. And it's sort of like, and I think people are starting to get it, but we're, we're very far from there being parity yeah. in terms of other physical health conditions. I agree. And I think also if you subscribe to that same sort of belief system, then you're not going to advocate for yourself. So you have to get on board with it because you're going to be the only person that's going to fight for your, like your validity, you know, and like, you can read as many like posts on Instagram that tell you that your mental illness is valid, but it's like, it's like, unless you really truly embody it and believe it and advocate for yourself, you're like, you're screwed. And it's not, um, it, it shouldn't be that way, but like, unfortunately, like that's sort of the reality of it, you know? I agree with you a thousand percent. It's like, as much as it's horrible, it's like, yeah, to understand yourself, to be empathic with yourself. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, the burden of having to educate mm-hmm. the people around you. And, and that adds this, like, I mean, it has this whole other stress to it. You still, mm-hmm. unfortunately, we still have to do it. Up in my, you know, daily life is I, I'm very forgetful. I'm incredibly absent-minded. I'll forget conversations or like, um, most often it's like things. I forgot, I forget where I put my keys. I forget where I put my phone. Um, and when I was in college, it got incredibly bad. Um, and the most common thing was that I would, I, I locked my keys in the car and that was, I just, I did it constantly. And so I used up all of the AAA calls to get the, the car keys out. And then I, I just had this feeling. I was like, I have to, I have to get better at this. I have to change. And I thought that, I don't know, I guess I thought like the solution was to like keep punishing myself 
and keep saying like, no, you need to, you need to conform. The rest of the world doesn't do this. What's, what's wrong with you? So instead of like creating a compassionate, you know, dialogue with myself, I opened a credit card specifically to have a, you know, the locksmith come out and open my car and I maxed it out within like two months. So it was like, it happened honestly, like four or five times a month enough to where it became like a financial burden and something just like snapped where I was like, I'm creating a hell. I'm making myself miserable. I got to be like super in debt. And (laughs) it was like, I, I, how, how that, how the hell am I going to like crawl out of this? And I realized that I was like, yeah, creating these conditions that were so, um, so lacking in compassion and empathy for myself that I thought, you know, like, okay, this hasn't worked. Let me try something else. So I made four copies of the car key and I gave one to my roommate. I put a second one in my bag. I hid one at school. I don't remember where I put it. It's probably still there somewhere. And when I, when I locked my keys in my car, you know, I, I, that's what I thought. I was like, if I lock my keys in my car, I'm going to, I'm going to have a second key. I swear to God to this day, after I made those keys, I never locked my keys in the car again. I never, I didn't need them. I ended up not needing them. It was like this act of like radical compassion for myself unlocked, pardon the pun, like this, that, this part of my brain that was like, okay, well, we won't, we won't do this anymore. Like, here's this, here's this compassion you offered. And now, (laughs) now we offer you the ability to to remember. (laughs) It's like a, like a lesson. Yeah, no. And, and the thing that you're talking about, and that's why I love that quote that you have where we won't take shame for an answer, Mm. you know, that it it's when we get into that shame cycle, it is like, we are, there's no conversation happening with ourselves. It's Mm. we're yelling at ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're like, you know, we're beating ourselves emotionally, sometimes physically, you know, Mm -hmm. where, where we just want it to stop. And, and just like, with every study on thought suppression, on emotional suppression, right. on experiential avoidance, it just comes back worse. And, right. and being able to stop with that and start with, look, this is happening. Mm-hmm. I'm not, and, and accepting doesn't mean like I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. It just means that I'm acknowledging that it's happening. Right. And just because this is happening doesn't mean that my, you know, uh, I, I'm no longer deserving of compassion or empathy because right. there's something that's different about me. Right. And this goes, and this is why like, you know, you and I talked ahead of time that we're not even getting into all the issues of that are the other issues that you take on in terms of discrimination, in terms of people who struggle with weight or in the LGBTQ community. And like, just, it seems as though in general, we have this tendency. If there's something different, the first thing is different, weird, shame, stop it, mm-hmm. you know? And then after that, it's like, oh, well, if you can crawl out of that, it's like, uh, you know, I guess we'll sort of let you back in right. to whatever quote unquote society is. Right. And it's such a horrible tendency instead of looking at something and different, oh, you know, I experience mood this way. You experience mood that way. Mm-hmm. We both are looking to 
to work, to love, to mm -hmm. enjoy. It's like, so this is what I need. What do you need? Right. And it's just, it's just, we're just not there yet, but I feel totally. like we're getting more there. And that's totally. why, you, you know, when you're saying like, like, let's not, let's not stop at shame for the answer. Or like, you know, you said things like vulnerability is the key to empathy or, you know, you need to express darkness as the key to happiness. Like, I think those are all in the right direction because if you can stop by saying like, listen, shame's not what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. You can be vulnerable and you can express your darkness. And that's a way to, again, it's not going to go away, mm -hmm. but there's a path, you know, there's mm -hmm. a path to, to the, your life feeling better. Mm -hmm. that, that to me is like everything about where we need to go. At this totally. Point. Yeah. I mean, I definitely noticed this in sort of, uh, in the work that I do with, um, with weight stigma and, and fat people too, is like, there's this, there is this feeling that if you are not thin, you are just constantly failing. And just like, not only is your own sort of self-perception as failing, but you, it's reinforced everywhere. And so, the sort of first foundational step of like ha like living in uninhibited like joyful life is is that acceptance is being like this is where i'm at this is who i am like i i need to get to at least a place that's neutral so that i can begin to sort of heal so that i can sort of examine what like separate separating um, Judith Matz talks about this. She's like one of the like first anti-diet like pioneers. She always makes a distinction of like, we have to separate characteristics like, like being fat or like being, you know, like having bipolar disorder from behavior that like these things aren't like, like fatness isn't a behavior, right? It's a, it's just a, it's just like height. It's just a characteristic. And so like, if we can examine behavior, which is more tricky to do, and it like requires like, um, you know, a, a, a reliable narrator, <laughs> um, someone that's not obsessed with people pleasing, <laughs> um, then, then you can sort of start to heal or create behaviors that are more helpful. Yeah. And, and, but the, you know, the, and I agree, I should say, but like, and the thing is, is that, you don't, so many people think to themselves, well, I'll be deserving of not being ashamed of myself. I'll mm. be deserving of compassion. I'll be deserving mm. of empathy. I'll be deserving of being allowed back at the table when I change this thing about myself. Mm, that's and, so and, and just to say like, no, like you deserve the empathy, you deserve the compassion, you deserve to be on the table, period. Yeah. Now the question is like, everybody wants to live their life to whatever their vision is of, mm -hmm. of the highest functioning. Now let's manage whatever we think is interfering with that from that perspective, but not from that gatekeeper right. perspective where it's like, Hey, you know, and, and, and it's, it's so tempting because it's, it's like, we, we all kind of collude with it. I'm going to go away. I'm going to work on myself mm -hmm. and then I'm going to come back. And right. look, there, there are some situations where I guess if you feel like you're doing all this damage in the world, like you said, like, you know, I kind of, you know, sometimes, you know, taking a breath and, and pulling back is an answer of sorts, but, but that's different than being like, I don't deserve to mm -hmm. be part of society, right. uh, you know? And, and that's, and yeah. that is, I think for a lot of people, 
how it feels to have a really like, I mean, we're talking here about, you know, mental health issues. I, I think that a lot of times anything that's different feels right. like, all right, well, I got to see what I can do about that. So I can, right. I can join the club, right. which is ironic right. because, because nobody wants to be a part of a club where you're not to, allowed to be different. So it's this very odd thing that right. we do because nobody wants to be in a world where our weaknesses are, are the focus of shame right. and the thing that separates us yet we all kind of collude with it and we all like kind of contribute to that when it's not us. Right. I think that's like the, the central part of feeling better and healing is the ability to reframe and to say like, what, um, like I'm at a point where like when I meet somebody that doesn't have mental illness, I'm like, how do you, how do you handle the world? Like the world is nuts. The world is like, 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 insane like the amount of stimulation and distraction and like you know pressure and advertise like how do you deal with that and not have your brain create a shortcut for you to like be in the world like to be in the in the in reality and now i feel like i'm able to see it as sort of like oh my brain is protecting me so that i can function like my and my body did the same thing my body is protecting me so that i can function and if you could reframe it and see it as like oh this is a gift like this is this is like the beautiful mechanism of survival that we get to um like understand a deeper part of ourselves and if we allow that to be you know, a central like tenet of our existence, then we can find like community. Then you can find other people that are experiencing the same thing as you. And I think that that's like, that's the power of empathy is like, you remember those really painful, shameful, dark times. You wouldn't wish that on anyone. So like you have this ability to say like, Hey, this thing is happening to me. (laughs) Anybody else? And it's like, the minute you see yourself reflected in either a conversation or on screen or like in a book or a movie, it's like this huge weight is lifted. It's like, Oh my God, I'm not a freak, you know? Yeah, Cause you just, you just need to know, you know, and that's, and that's why it's, it's hard also. And I find it in, in the, you know, in the health profession, just sort of in the mental health profession, you, 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 you can't fake that. Mm. You know, you have to either be like, I get it, or you have to at least be honest that you don't get it. Right. You know what I mean? But there has to be that, that, that something is like, look, we're human beings having this conversation again, like you have that conversation with yourself, you have it with someone else. And I agree with you, but when you can find, and that's, and that's why people, you know, how many people will say music saved me because that was the first time I heard anyone talking about depression. That was the first mm-hmm. time I ever someone talking about loving someone who was same sex. That was the mm-hmm. first time I ever heard about, you know, someone talking about, you know, just anything. And, mm-hmm. and once you have that, just knowing that there's one person out there, you know, who right. has anything like you, which is why I think, you know, people like yourself stepping up who have so many fans, just knowing like, Oh, you know, you know, Mary's talking about it. Maybe there's hope for me is like, you know, is, is, is the beginning of, 
again, shifting from that shame to that understanding and empathy. And, and it would be, it would be very different for people. Right. I think so too. I always think of that, um, you know, like the galaxy brain meme where like the, the, you know, the first brain is like, I don't need to talk to anybody. I need to figure this out on myself. And then the next brain is like, ah, maybe I should talk to somebody or get help and it's okay the way I am. And then the whole galaxy brain is like, if everybody is struggling in some way and everybody needs therapy and everybody is challenged in all these ways, maybe the systems are a part of this, like maybe, maybe the culture that we have created, maybe what we're experiencing is part of a greater flaw in the system. And I am not broken and you are not broken. And we are all just surviving in the system that needs to be like totally taken apart and re-examined and see how it can be more inclusive for everybody. Just maybe. <laughs> I think I think that has to be the final word. That was uh, that was too powerful to follow up. <laughs> Mary, thank you so much for for coming on. This is, it's been uh, great talking with you. I'm sorry, uh, just that you know it's it's a lot that you've been through, but I really appreciate you sharing it because um, it really I think is going to help people uh, change their that shame cycle and that shame spiral. Thank you. I could just talk all day about this stuff. <laughs> well, can we, we, we'll plan on another time for sure. Yeah, I would love to. Part two. <laughs> Part two. I love it. So there it is. Mary Lambert talking about her experience struggling with bipolar disorder. There is so much to take away from the conversation with Mary. One of the things that I wanted to highlight was a phrase Mary used at the beginning of our discussion, that she is trying to make mental health legible. I really appreciated Mary using this term and her work over the years to help us all make our mental health a bit more legible. Mary talks about many issues that impacted her mental health. Not only does she struggle with bipolar disorder, but also she struggled with trauma and discrimination based on her sexual orientation and weight. When we talk about mental health, we often talk about single diagnoses, like when I said at the beginning of the episode that we are talking about bipolar disorder only. But the truth is, is that at any one time, there are many feelings, thoughts, and behaviors that we may have that may come from different parts of our lives and experiences. We don't always know what we are feeling, thinking, or doing, or why these experiences happen. That's why it's so important that we be curious about, rather than critical of, our experience. We need to focus on making our mental health more legible, more clear and understandable, rather than shaming and judging ourselves. That way, rather than hide from or avoid our mental health and well-being, we can examine our experience so that we can help ourselves cope and heal. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to our sponsor, AbbVie's GettingHereToThere.com, a safe online space for the Borderline One community to find inspiration through music and firsthand stories. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with bipolar disorder, trauma, anxiety, depression, or addiction, and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, 
and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.